You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Welcome to SpyCast. My name is Dr. Andrew Hammond, historian and curator here at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. Every week, SpyCast explores the world of intelligence and espionage by bringing you in-depth conversations with spies, spy masters, intelligence officers, and authors. We explore the stories, secrets, tradecraft, and technology of a world that looms beneath the surface of everyday life. Welcome to this week's episode of SpyCast. This week we pick up where we left off last week when we began a conversation with Doug London on his book, The Recruiter, The Lost Art of American Intelligence. Just to remind you, Doug had a 34-year career with the CIA, including multiple assignments as Chief of Station. He's thoughtful, perceptive, and candid. Enjoy. Another thing that I was just thinking when you were talking there as well, that saying, follow the money, follow the incentives. Well, where are the incentives? And it's on particular things. I wondered how that played out in the agency. And I'm thinking of, you mentioned being on promotion panels and evaluating different types of people. If I'm in charge, if I'm heading up a section, if I'm a booster who make all of the people in my section look like amazing, they're changing the world and I've got a particular skill set where I know how to play the institution to make sure that my people get the position over other people's uh, favorite candidates and so forth. How do you deal with that? You know, you were saying that the women are much more honest about where they are and analysts were much more honest as a directorate than operations. Like, how do you bring that into the DO? How do you get okay, we hear what you're saying, you're advancing this person because if they get the job, then you look good and they say that you were their mentor and the whole system just keeps going on and on. How do we get to the objective reality of how competent and good this person is if we take away all of the fluff and all of the other stuff around it? I mean, this is a big question. (laughs) What's your thoughts on that? Because you've thought about this quite a lot and it comes through in your book. My book does talk a fair bit about changes in the agency after 9-11, largely uh, in leadership, and how that took the agency, I think, off of its path, unfortunately had some negative impact on its credibility and its capability. And I think that's, one, it's human nature, two, it's a part of any government bureaucracy. So there's an interesting study, the last public one I know, that the agency did on diversity 
in the ranks and promotions is from 2015. And ironically, it was released. It used to be on the CIA website. I can't find it anymore. It's probably more about me. It's not anything conspiratorial, but maybe it is. So uh, the study was really interesting because it looked at different groups. It looked at ethnic minorities. It looked at women. It looked at uh, the number we were hiring. It looked at their advancement through the ranks, just like we're talking about right now. And it showed that while the agency had made tremendous progress in hiring more women, more people of color, ethnic groups, minorities, and such like that, it had actually gotten worse in promoting them. So while there might have been more black officers or Hispanic officers or women being brought in, they were getting promoted at a slower rate than white males. How's that happen? Are the white males that much better? No, obviously they're not. What it is is sadly still a cliquish kind of mentality. It's still, and particularly what plagued the agency after 9-11 was, what does an agency leader look like? There's somebody who looks like me. There's somebody who went to the same schools as me. There's someone who believes and agrees with me who tends to kiss my butt for one thing, right? These are my people. So I'm going to bring them up and I'm going to protect them. And I will circle the wagons when something goes wrong to protect myself since I've invested myself in their advancement. That's bad for espionage. That's bad for any organization, but particularly for a group that's supposed to be truth to power. And I think that plagued the agency over the, the last 20 years. And I'm actually, on a positive note, really pleased so far at what I've seen in the newspapers, that uh, Ambassador Burns and Mr. Cohen, the deputy, and Dave Marlowe, the new chief of the Clandestine Service, have been doing, because I see the names of people who are leaving the agency and people who are being promoted into new positions. And sometimes those positions, are, they're because of cover. You can't know who they are, but I kind of know who they are. And I'm like, good on you right calls. You're, you're moving in the right direction. But 20 years of that, that's generational. You don't change that overnight. So if the agency has gotten to this very cliquish mentality of groups of people who are promoting in their own likeness, who are going to repeat the same mistakes and be an obstacle for the advancement of, by meritocracy of deserving officers of color, women, ethnic groups like that, that's not going to change overnight. I have actually great confidence in the Burns, Cohen, and, and Marlowe team. I know them all. I like them all. I think they're good people with good intentions, but I've seen their struggles. I've seen some of the bureaucratic tricks they've kind of used to move some people out, which I won't detail, but which was clever. I give them credit, but it hasn't been confrontational because they don't want to blow up the place. So I understand that as well. And maybe I'm a bit more radical in terms of blowing up things when we need to fix it. But they're on the right path. But I think changing it to a meritocracy, stripping away the proclivity to promote in your own likeness and favor certain groups or have an innate bias, cultural or otherwise, against people because they're not like you, it's going to take time even if they really want to make the changes. And I can only hope that it will reinforce itself positively in the same generational fashion, that they will nurture and advance the careers of the right people. But a lot of the folks that have made it up the over, over the years have been company men and women, if you would. People who like, I'm not going to rock the boat. I'm going to do what I need to to get promoted. I, that's what he believes or she believes. By God, that's what I believe, right? Twofold and such like that and double down. A spy service? 
you've got to have some people who have different points of view. We talk about alternative analysis and finished products, right? In terms of making sure that the entire analytic community gets together and thinks of even the craziest things to rule them out so that people aren't biased. There's not, you know, groupthink, personalities dominating. It's the same piece in, in operations. There's great risks being involved, and those risks should be based not on a political calculus, but on an operational calculus. Is this secure? Is this the right thing to do? Is it worth doing? When you have people who become company people in a sense that they just, oh, yeah, that's your idea because you're the chief of the division or you're the assistant director for the center, that's not healthy for a spy service. You have to do it in a respectful way. So you don't have the sharp elbows. And I've been rightfully accused of having sharp elbows over the years. I mean, no doubt about it. But there's got to be at least a way that you can say, respectfully, there might be another way to do it. One of the big cultural changes in the agency, even from the time of the 90s. So in the 90s, I was already a, a fairly good mid-level rank, right? And so I really saw a big change after 9-11 where my day, I'd come back from the field, even as a junior case officer, a first tour case officer. I'd see my division chief or now the assistant director and it'd be 30 minutes of kibitzing and it's all love and it's all like there's no sir, there's no mister. It was first name because we're spies. Spies call each other by first names, right? And talk about your recruitment and talk about your cases and isn't that awesome? It's so rare for somebody that senior to you know abide having a meeting with a junior officer. I don't have time for that sort of thing. I'm not even going to sort of consort with people who are more in the trenches because I'm going to talk to my lieutenants. And what are my lieutenants going to tell me? They're going to tell me what I want to hear. So we need to get away from that in a respectful way that's fair. But the CIA became such a military, the DO particularly, such a militarized organization after 9-11 that changed its culture. There was a great deal of censorship, sometimes self-censorship, because people knew this is not the way I'm going to get promoted. I'm just thinking about all of the institutions that I've ever been a part of. And one of the people that I've interviewed that I respected most was Brzezinski, Carter's mm -hmm. National Security Advisor. And I remember reading in some archives, it was his military advisor, Bill Odom, who went on to become the, the director of the NSA in the 1980s. And one of the reasons Brzezinski employed him is because he would just have furious arguments with him yeah. and he would stand up to him and he would, and he would kind of argue the points with him. And if Brzezinski thought he had good points, he would be prepared to seed ground. But if not, he would pursue with what he wanted to do. But it's very rare to find someone with enough intellectual or personal self-confidence that they're happy for someone else that is bright to have a, a real sharp elbowed argument with them and then still leave the room and for things to reset back to normal and just to go ahead with whatever the decision was like how do you get people like that because in my experience people just don't like to be challenged people just like to be either validated or you can say something and you can you can maybe go a few percent outside of what i've said and i maybe follow you there but there's a kind of five or ten percent boundary where if you go too far out of that you're kind of not really one of my people anymore so the greatest danger are leaders who are themselves insecure so the case you explained is is somebody who's secure enough who wants to hear different points of views and you know the irony is a good case officer wants that because a good case officer wants to look for whatever weakness might exist. I want to look for the weakness. I want to find the weakness myself and correct it so it doesn't find me first. But if we go back to what we said earlier, we talked about these case officers, uh, at least running in the DO, who have tremendous egos, subdue them a great deal to do their job, uh, 
put through a whole lot with very little recognition, go through all sorts of interesting life challenges, and now they've made it. Now they're senior. Now people are like bowing down to them and, and, and treating them like they're, they're gods. And in some cases, some of the senior officers that I speak about in my book were marvelous case officers and were terrific up to the point where they became cult icons. And there was a transition when they became this like point of, of reverence that they loved it because they were starved for it. We're starved for it. We're case officers. We're egomaniacs. And yet we can't like cultivate our ego, right? We have to like, keep it in check all the time. And now we've got people calling us, sir. I mean, there was this one of the big changes in the agency was everybody's chief. Hi, chief. Good morning, chief. Good afternoon, chief. And we never did that before. And I'm thinking, why do they do that? Okay. If you're the chief of station, you're the chief. But just because you're a more senior officer, you're not a chief necessarily. But it's this whole kind of like, you know, military thing of like chief and sir and stuff like that. And I actually told the stations I ran or the offices I ran, don't call me sir. Call me Doug. Because you set up an atmosphere where you're automatically creating an imbalance. If you have that really rigid hierarchy, I want them to respect me because hopefully they like me and they think I'm a good leader and they think I'm a good case officer. But not because oh, I'll make or break their lives and stuff. So they've got to like da-da-da because they're not going to tell me the truth. They're not going to tell me what they think I don't want to hear. But these very same personalities, it works against them, doesn't it? Where once they've had and they tasted this world where they're now being invited to the White House and they're going to the Hill and sometimes actually on the Hill, it's very different than people think when they go for oversight. Sometimes it's a love fest. It's like, oh, thank God you're an American hero and whatever like that. It's like – Seriously, I went to one of these meetings as a backbencher of one of these very senior people who I knew was doing stuff that I didn't really agree with. It's like, oh, you're an American hero and icon. So they're going to come back and they're going to listen to some junior officer tell them that they're doing it wrong? Not likely. So how do you take these people who had to be a certain way to get up through and, and achieve as they did operationally and then make them into good leaders who have the wherewithal to have the security, as you said, the self-confidence? to be questioned, where I sat in rooms with some of these people and they would eviscerate you at the first word if it wasn't what they wanted to hear. Actually, there's one of the characters in my book who did just that. I was briefed at a real sensitive operation. We were prepping to go see the director. I had to go deliver it to him first so he could kind of review it and such like that. And I literally, the first word out of my mouth, he said, shut up. It's like, uh, you know, where do you go from here? How do I tell him something he doesn't want to hear? Really hard to do. So I've seen some transformational leaders. Sadly, some of them whom I'm thinking have left. But I, I remember this one chap, and I can't name him, terrific guy. We would be in a meeting, and he was the, the center chief, and I was a department chief. So I was kind of like one of his lieutenants. I had an area of the world or whatever it was. And we were briefing him very similarly on what we we're going to tell the director about our findings on this particular issue. And my people came up, my ops people, my analysts, and they were all great. And they all, they were, they were the experts. They were the people in the trenches. And they told him stuff that totally flew against what he believed. And I know this guy, I know this guy my whole career. And he had sharp elbows at a time too, but God, he must've gone to a great therapist because he just sat there and he go, so you all think this way. And, you know, they all went through it. It's not just they believed it, but they made their case. And he went, okay. And I went to him after the meeting and I said, blank name. I said, wow, I know you don't agree with that. He goes, yeah, but they're the experts. And they made a really good case. So in my heart, I don't necessarily agree, but what they showed me is what I'm going to go with. That's a leader. 
And that's what we need to be. And the agency, at least I left in 2019, was not nearly there and had gone totally in the wrong direction. And I'm hoping the leadership we have today at the top will nurture those traits and then reinforce it throughout the ranks as we advance people. I want to come back to that because that's a large part of your book. I want to discuss generational change, but also your appraisal of the post 9-11 agency because you're very forthcoming. So just on the back cover, the CIA finds itself today at a crossroads as an organization that has sought to reinvent itself after the debacle of 9-11's intelligence failure and its subsequent ethical compromise in facilitating the Bush-Cheney fabrications that justified the invasion of Iraq. I could go on, then you come out swinging. So I just wondered if you could help our listeners understand that larger thesis that you make. And as you said, you are quite critical of people that were involved at senior levels after 9-11. So there's a lot going on there, and people should read the book. But help our listeners understand that part of it, because I found the recruiting and the case officer and all the stuff that we've discussed so far really, really fascinating. But I do want to touch on that bigger thesis that you have in the book. What happened, and not to go into a whole history lesson, you know, the CIA was created in 1947. It was specifically set out to be independent by making it civilian, by not putting it under a policymaking organization, be it the military, the Department of Defense, or State Department. The intel community is 18 agencies, most of which are actually under the Department of Defense. But the CIA was supposed to be the central intelligence agency. So it was supposed to be objective in the sense that if it wasn't a policymaker, it didn't have to worry about criticizing its own policy recommendations and its own policies. It could be an independent arbiter of, if this is what you want to do, Mr. President, here's what I expect the consequences will be by laying out the intelligence that's been collected with good analysis, because intelligence is always a mosaic, right? It's a jigsaw puzzle where you never have complete information, but you can't wait for complete information to make those decisions. So the decisions have to be made on what you have and the level of confidence that you have in it. CIA officers didn't have uniforms. A lot of intel services around the world, they have ranks, they have uniforms. When they have an event, they, they dress up and they're put on their medals and stuff like that. I mean, it's like an act of God to get a medal in the agency. It's like, so you lost an arm doing that. That's your job, you know? I'm being a little flippant, but really that's kind of like that's a little bit of the attitude. And that's fine. We sign up for that, right? Post 9-11, the CIA was like, oh my God, we're going away. People wanted heads. They wanted blood. And the CIA did actually a number of things right. The 9-11 Commission report, they actually had the intelligence. They were blinking the red lights as the 9-11 Commission report. Nobody was listening. But what they didn't do was share that with other agencies tracking terrorists that would be on those aircraft, things like that, that the CIA's lack of transparency within the community is what failed us. That was the intelligence failure for the CIA. Not that it wasn't doing everything it possibly could and producing intelligence, but that it didn't talk to the FBI. Now, and the fault is not just with the agency, the FBI, there's plenty to go around. But at the end of the day, for me, when I think of what's my responsibility, dang, we didn't share the news that if we had, maybe, right, maybe if. So the CIA is looking around and going, Donald Rumsfeld already hates us. We embarrassed him by getting to Afghanistan within 15 days where DOD was going, hmm, how do we get troops there? What do we do? And I'm being facetious because 
thank God for our brothers and sisters in the military and what they did. But the military wasn't constructed with the agility and the flatness of management and the authorities the CIA had that allowed them to just roll out, realign, and move based on old relationships and capabilities that the military didn't have. So it took them a little longer and CIA facilitated their movement to the ground in 9-11. So the agency thought, how can we save ourselves? What do we have? That's unique to CIA that nobody else has that could save us, and that's covert action. Now, the covert action authorities that the CIA have are unique in that it's usually, and I say usually, the agency of U.S. government that performs covert action, which is a deniable act, not secret. DOD, the military, lots of people do secret things. But what can we do And when, oh, that's a shame, something blew up there, or some government no longer exists, but we don't know anything about that. Only the CIA can do that, where it's deniable. If the military, and there's lots of other considerations, prisoners of war, various treaties and conventions protecting our soldiers and such like that, can't do it. The president technically can assign covert action to another agency. No president ever has for all the right reasons. So CIA thought, covert action. So what does that mean for us? Covert action for us means what problems does the White House have that we can make ourselves important enough to them that they're going to protect us because the CIA needed protection. Right? It needed somebody to help it because DOD is an 800-pound gorilla. It could crush, it could swallow, and Rumsfeld wanted to do all of that, even State Department, because the CIA director traditionally has not been a cabinet member. There have been some exceptions when Casey was, but traditionally they are not a cabinet member. They are the president's advisor, at least they were until they became a director of national intelligence, the primary advisor, but they've got no lobby They've got no public support. Most people have a negative default reaction when they think of the CIA, even to this day. I ask my students at the beginning of the class, when you think CIA, and tell me truly, is it negative? Is it positive? It tends to be negative. Now we've earned some of that, particularly the last 20 years. So what problems can we solve for the White House? Well, Al-Qaeda just happens to have gone to, Afghan, uh, to Pakistan. Hmm, that's a problem because the U.S. military can't go into Pakistan and the Pakistanis are not doing what we need them to do to go after Al-Qaeda. CIA is going to go after them there. That's good. Actually, I had no problem with that. But then we got to, how are we going to get to terrorists? Let's just kill them all. We've developed these amazing capabilities, and they've become so amazing and so reliable, and we are so good at it. That's going to be our easy button. When we find a bad guy, we, as we say colloquially, remove them from the battlefield. That could be capture as well, but it's so often was easier to do something kinetic. Whereas, what about the conditions that led to terrorism? What about different groups that are now fracturing and showing up? The decentralization of Al-Qaeda, where we now have affiliates in Yemen, which are more threatening to us based on Ibrahim Assyria, a terrific bomb maker, Anwar al-Awlaki, who today, 10 years after his death, continues to inspire more terrorists than Osama bin Laden did. Let's just kill him. I don't think that was the best. I think Kinetic would have been a good tool to have in the kit, but not the go-to button. But it showed great metrics. And the White House could talk about hundreds of terrorists being killed, you know, no attacks in the United States. Well, there still were, but there was no 9-11 kind of attack, right? We missed ISIS in the Middle East because we were so focused on whack-a-mole in South Asia and such like that. What else can we do politically for the White House? Well, there's all these combatants off the battlefield. Now, traditionally, the military should be responsible for a combatant. If we're at war, Vietnam, Korea, whatever, they are able to. But this was a new kind of combatant. Who was it? Was it a member of a government? Was it a member of a foreign state or their treaty obligations? Do the Vienna Geneva Conventions apply here? The lawyers didn't know how to handle that. So the military couldn't take them. What are we going to do with them? We know they're bad guys or we thought they were bad people. Ah, CIA will take them. So CIA took the combatants and we, we hear about the black sites. But then we hear about enhanced interrogation. So the black sites, you know, 
in a sense, if the lawyers are all behind it and it's simply the CIA holding them and doing the debriefings, I don't really have a problem with that if we're doing it right. But we farm out to these Air Force psychologists this program of enhanced interrogation, which is just absolutely inconsistent with our not just our values, but our tradecraft. We talk about using rapport, creating motivations, and even with a detainee, because I've been in the box, as they say, with enough detainees where it was like trying to find something that would incentivize the detainee, not torturing them into answers for the same reasons I said why we don't coerce people. How can I trust that intelligence? To this day, as much as some defend enhanced interrogation, and they talk about, oh, we would have never gotten some of this, I call, I, I don't think that's true. Because if we look at Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the chief of operations for Al-Qaeda, basically, who came up with the aviation plot in the first place, Abu Faraj al-Libi, who succeeded him a year or two thereafter, they were spending most of their time distracting us from where bin Laden was. So they were lying to us. Like any well-trained Al-Qaeda or any terrorist or any member of a foreign government, they're trained to deal with detention. They're trained for layering, providing some truths and appearing to be cooperative and stuff like that. If they have a stake in it, if there's an incentive, maybe it's their treatment, maybe it's the treatment of their family. Hey, KSM, we know you left behind a family. We'll look after them. We'll take care of them, whatever like that. Those are more valid incentives to get them talking, but we totally tarnished our reputation for a program that I think wasn't even efficient, that didn't even work. But it solved the White House problem because we were genuinely, because to take us all back to September 12th, there were other Al-Qaeda plots. There were other plots coming. There was no doubt about it even then. And as we'd find out, they were en route and being developed. We were going to be hit again, and it was going to be bloody awful. So there was this near panic. We must preempt the next plots. So the idea of enhanced interrogation, the White House loved it. They got lawyers to sign off on it. And ironically, some of the CIA leaders found a way to leave their names off the paper trail in terms of authorizing a lot of the specific activities and now make no comment about it, which I think is unfortunate because the CIA needs to be accountable because we need the CIA. By God, we need the agency more today now than ever. They are often our first, last, and best line of defense to preempt nightmares that, God willing, people will never have to suffer. But that's done by at least being accountable internally. So we go, you know, we messed up. That was wrong. We need to fix that. So no airing the dirty laundry, no leaking documents to the press, none of that stuff. But at least having the security, and we're talking about leadership, leaders who are secure enough to look at the warts and think, what do we fix so that we're doing the right job? I just want to touch on that briefly for a minute because I get emails from people saying because of the nature of our podcast, there's always a sense to which people can say, well, if only you knew what I knew, then you would agree with me. And for just Joe Q public or Gen Q public, there's no way around that. For the Iraq war, for example, if you saw the intelligence I saw, you would think that going to war was a good thing. But then afterwards, obviously, the story is more complicated. So how do you deal with that deficit where you can't just say, okay, public, rake through all of our files and find whatever you may. But how do you get over that point of leverage that you have where you say, well, enhanced interrogations worked. And if you knew what I knew, you would know that they worked, but I can't tell you. I don't know. That's difficult for just your average person on the street going about their business to kind of get their head around. What are your thoughts on that? So it's tricky being a secret organization working for an open society. I believe in oversight. And actually, I will tell you, most of my oversight experiences with Congress are very positive. 
not negative. Uh, of course, things went downhill significantly under the Trump years and by pressures from all sides, I would imagine. But because of the nature of our society, we need some degree of transparency because we do need public confidence. Even the CIA needs public confidence. One of the changes after 9-11 was the creation of the Office of Director of National Intelligence. And I have some issues and concerns about how that office has functioned. I think sometimes it could be a distraction. Resources may be used other places. But one of the fundamental responsibilities of that office, to which I totally agree, was to allow the American public some sense of transparency so that they would have reason to trust above and beyond the oversight. Because the oversight, and you think it's a Republican form of government representative, right? So we can't have John and Jane Public sitting in on testimony for, for me to go up to the Hill, but their representative, who they've elected, is representing them. And behind those closed doors, at least up until the time I left in 2019, it was fairly bipartisan because they were closed doors, because the senators and the congressmen and the staffers, and the staffers actually were nastier than the members, really, knew that this wasn't getting out, God willing, unless somebody on their side leaked it, which they would protect. So if you were honest with them and said, here's the stop, we screwed up, they wouldn't really take you to the, to the woodshed. They would appreciate your honesty and ask you, well, what are you doing to fix it? And who's responsible? And what are you doing accountability-wise? Accountability was always a problem. That was a very healthy place for that discord. There were some exceptions. And I would say Monk Pompeo, when he was uh, a congressman, was not as bipartisan. He just had a bone in his teeth about Benghazi that he was not going to let go. He was out to chastise Hillary Clinton. But for the most part, Republicans, Democrats, really good about that. So the DNI's job in complement to oversight committees is to give the public some reassurance that the intelligence community writ large, not just CIA, is on the case, is doing the right things, is being overseen properly and effectively. And they do that sometimes. You see more and more of these sterilized, unclassified versions of finished products that are coming out. I have some mixed feelings about that too, because I think no matter how you sterilize an intelligence product, you're giving something away to our adversaries that think, okay, the only reason they knew this is because they must have an agent or they must be listening or they must be something. But they do a decent job. I mean, we, we have to share some things, right? Because we share things with foreign governments all the time because we need them to act on our intelligence. So we don't want to compromise our sources and methods, so we sterilize it. But constantly, if the American public sees sensational press exposures and begins to worry, because generally they're going to see the failures, aren't they? That's what's going to generally come out. Things that went wrong, not all the things that went right. So you need a DNI who is... Of course, going to be political to some extent because they're chosen by the president. But to the degree they can, lives by the code. Coates was a Republican. Clapper was both, right? He worked for both Republican and Democratic administrations. There was no political bias because their jobs protect the intelligence community, sustain that level of trust so that they can do their jobs in secret and be relied upon. I think that's part of the issue we have at hand, and I'm really kind of worried about it with the way things are going politically these days. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. 
Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. There's so much that we could dig our teeth into here, but I want to discuss just generational change in the CIA before moving on to undoubtedly one of the most precocious and impressive counterintelligence operators that you mention in the book. And I'm thinking of your second youngest daughter. <laughs> so we can come, we can come onto that one in a, in a second. But tell us about the agency that you encountered when you went through its doors in 1984. So at the time, Bill Casey, someone that I've done some research on, he's the director of central intelligence. Help us understand the CIA that you encountered then, and then we can maybe explore how it's changed in the various generations that you saw coming through. But what was it like in 1984 to be Doug London? Who was there? Who were the dinosaurs? Who was the ruling dynasty? Help us understand what you encountered. First of all, to be fair, it's always been fun. I loved being a spy. Uh, I loved it all 34 years. I loved the work. I loved the job because it's the mission, and it's the mission that always keeps me in it. But in the 80s, it was a cowboy organization, at least the DO was, and particularly the Near East Division, uh, Near East South Asia, which is where I, where I came in and joined and spent many of my years overseas. So Casey had been an OSS operative, you know, behind enemy lines, all that kind of stuff. So he really encouraged a lot of that esprit de corps. One of the ironies about the agency I, I found, and for case officers, you know, I'm a former Marine, and the Marines have that, you know, spirit of being really special, and we're elite and stuff like that, and once a Marine, always a Marine. There's no such attitude in the CIA, and I'm thinking, why not? Damn, we do some pretty cool stuff, right? But in fact, there's like a statutory effort to like deprogram you and not think you're particularly elite or special, which I don't think is necessarily healthy. But in the 80s, I mean, we were all cowboys, everybody. And, and that was encouraged. And I'm not talking recklessness at all. I'm talking about good, well-considered risks. These days, these days, unfair for me to say, in my last few years, the risk were, what's the political calculus? Are we going to get in trouble? How will this look? Will it get leaked? What will it look like if it gets leaked as opposed to Will we, by doing that, steal the secret and keep people alive and not get our agent killed or a case officer killed? That should be the, uh, the risk analysis, right? So, for example, I talked about this militarized attitude in the agency post 9-11. One of my first things I kind of stand out in my memory as a young trainee in 1984 in the, the vaunted Near Eastern South Asia Division was we had a visiting ambassador from one of the countries that I was responsible for. So as a trainee, they put me on a desk to get seasoned, right? To read cables, provide support to the field, that kind of stuff. And we had an ambassador from one of those countries. And I had the job of escorting this ambassador to see Claire George, who was the director of operations, the head of the clandestine service. And I was like, I was all scared and nervous to begin with, right? Oh my God, you know, I'm going to meet Claire George, who was an icon. I mean, history of being one of those great out in front, recruiter, all that kind of stuff. And I remember walking the ambassador to the executive suite and the receptionist, you know, tells us to wait. Claire George comes out. He, of course, greets the ambassador politely, first as he should, shakes his hand, then turns to me and goes, Doug, how you doing? I hear you're doing great things. I almost fainted. You know, Claire George knows my name. Claire George was a case officer. The first thing he was in life was a case officer, and he always was a case officer. And in that sense, that I made me feel like, wow, that's really cool. Now a uh, trainee doesn't get to see that. Are you kidding? To even see the DDO? And Dave Marlow is actually a really good guy. And, and this is not fair because I know Dave actually tries to get out there and see the folks, and, and he's a great mentor and stuff. But that went away for 20 years, right? So 
It was all first names. It was all, you were measured by how good a spy you were. Oh, you know, I hear Bill had a really great hard target recruitment. Now it's like, oh, do you hear Bill is getting this job because he's friends with the division chief? It's a different conversation, isn't it? So the change generational, of course, there's going to be generational changes. And there should be. Every generation changes. I remember being a young chief of station in the 90s. They had a chief of station conference. So every year, usually divisions of the centers will bring all the CUSs from abroad. And we'll talk about it. And one of the things we were talking about was this new generation of officer. So I'm sitting in this big room, all these old, cranky white guys, right? And I'm you know, really young looking and stuff like that to begin with. And I'm actually part of that new generation. They're talking about, right? Ah, these kids today is like Scooby-Doo, these meddling kids and whatever like that. What do they know? They've all been enabled. I've been hearing that for 34 years. Every generation successfully will say that about the next generation. But every new generation brings skills and gifts, social media awareness. I mean, old dinosaurs like me trying to teach us how to use IT. My grandchild already, who's three years old, knows how to use social media. Right? I mean, it's just phenomenal. So there's a generational imprint, which is healthy, that newer generations bring because what they bring with them, that's a good thing. And the old folks just need to adopt and adjust and make good adjustments. I mean, they're going to bring good and bad, right? But the agency will look different every generation. What changed generationally, unfortunately, that I speak of in my book was this transition from being an elite spy service to being a bureaucratic government agency, which... It's not going to work in great power competition where a lot of our rivals and our adversaries got a lot better over the last 20 years. While we were focused on kinetic activity and paramilitary and being a policy mouth of the White House, which there have, and I do speak about this about Mr. Brennan. I think he was very focused on making the agency a player for better or for worse. Getting away from that, the Russians, the North Koreans, the Iranians, I'm talking developing countries have gotten better because of the advances in technology, which they could use a lot for counterintelligence to catch us out there. So we need to make a big investment again in how do we innovate? How do we do things like when in the 70s and the 80s and behind the Iron Curtain, if you would, how do we come up with new cool ways to spy that allowed us to be successful when we were blanketed by surveillance, right? Now we have these ubiquitous technical surveillance issues and biometrics and stuff. We're not done. We're hardly done. But we need to make an investment. We need to take risks. We need to make some mistakes in the process to get where we need to be to, again, be not just a premier spy service, because I still think CIA is, but to be so many leaps and bounds ahead of everybody else. It seems like what you're saying is that operations are the real CIA. That's what it's really fundamentally meant to be about. Maybe if we're thinking about technological change, could there be a point where everything that you need to do can be done through cyber or through total surveillance or something? So the soul of the agency is really going to become more about the analytical side rather than the human operations side. So that's like a big question. And I just wondered if you had any views on that, on analysis and operations, the soul of the agency. Okay. To sound cool to my kids, I'll say, let's unpack that. Because <laughs> that's one of the phrases they taught me to use. There should be a balance in what CIA does. It was created with that balance in mind, that balance between foreign intelligence collection, expert analysis, and covert action. Covert action should be by necessity. It should be a small but important part of the portfolio because no one else could do it. And there will be times where we must engage in covert action to prevent a war or to do something that we can't do in any other way. 
but it over the 20 years since 9-11 just grew to be the priority, it seemed. Foreign intelligence collection and analysis goes hand in hand. CIA being created as this independent, in theory, objective organization, didn't have its own policy considerations, was, if you would, a central clearinghouse, thus central, of all intelligence and was always going to be, hopefully still be, the mission manager for human intelligence, meaning CIA would have to deconflict, coordinate, oversee, and set the standards for foreign intelligence collection, at least clandestine foreign intelligence collection, because actually at the end of the day, most human intelligence is overt. It's people in embassies doing their job, talking to foreign officials. That's a bit of what John Brennan wanted. He wanted the CIA to become, if you would, sort of an overt but covert collector. We were just talking to the ministries of interiors or the ministries of security of other countries. That's a real danger. So I think the the balance that where the CIA is, serves the greatest value is it is the premier foreign intelligence service, at least in the United States. It is supposed to set the standards. And then because it has this insight across the community, it could de-conflict. So lots of 18 intelligence agencies, a bunch of people out there collecting. CIA knows what's going on. Their chief of station, their DNI rep understands working closely with the chief of mission, the ambassador in a country, What's in the best U.S. interest, national interest? In terms of a very good point of, well, do we need espionage? We've got technology. We've got cyber. The reality is none of that works in an information vacuum. We've got the sexiest satellites, the most beautiful drones, gadgets galore, which are worthless unless there's an agent that tells you where do you look, who are you looking for, what's the frequency, what's the phone number, what's the email address, What's the routine? What's the pattern of life? When are they leaving their house? What house do they live in? None of these great gadgets in the world work on their own. The tragedy that occurred on August 29th in Kabul, where the U.S. military took a drone strike against an innocent civilian that they thought was an ISIS-K member, was because of a lack of human intelligence and a lack of a local human intelligence partner on the ground to do something. So it was clearly less reliable intelligence. According to press, CIA tried to warn DOD not to take the strike in terms of did they reach the threshold for this was a valid target and were there civilians there? That's just what I read in the press. But I know CIA, and again, I think they need to temper down its connectivity. They are unbelievably good at it. The number of civilian casualties alleged to be part of those strikes are really not accurate. And I know for for a fact. So they take that very seriously. They do too much of it, but they do it very well. But you didn't have the intelligence to effectively inform the, the the drones that were looking at this person. Were you looking at the right person? You think he's ISIS. Why do you think he's ISIS? What's the human intelligence, the signals intelligence that may have came from phone numbers and emails provided by agents? That's the kind of stuff you need. So all these great tools in the world, we absolutely need them, but we talk about them being human enabled, human enabled technical collection. Without the human-enabled part, these machines are huge paperweights. Will there ever be a point where that human-enabled action is denuded because of technological developments? So, for example, the example that you gave, that's a tactical drone strike on a particular family or whatever. But to go back to the idea of the Central Intelligence Agency, strategic intelligence, great power conflict, and so forth, will it ever get to the point do you think where it's like well i don't really need to have a conversation with doug i can just i can look at where he shops what he buys 
I can steal information about his DNA. I can basically get enough big data about you to relatively accurately predict how you're going to act on a particular day. So why would I bother having a conversation with someone when that conversation is inevitably going to be affected by their subjectivity, the mood they're in that particular day, all of these other things that that are involved when we're dealing with the very interpersonal component of espionage, which was front and center in your book. So a big question again, but I just wondered if you had any thoughts on that. And thus we get to the subtitle of The Lost Art of American Intelligence. Exactly. So you could be listening to somebody's phone conversations. You could be reading their mail. You could track them hither and yarn. But uh, And this is not meant to be corny, but it's actually really true. You don't know what's in their hearts and minds. You don't know what their aspirations are. You don't know what their intentions are. Having an agent who knows that person that tells you the context. So I've been involved in cases where NSA and CIA listen to a uh, SIGINT cut, right? Something from a phone conversation, a radio transmission, uh, an eavesdropping, whatever the case. And they each translated the words exactly the same, completely different meanings. Because they just had the words. They really didn't know what was in that person's mind. What are they planning to do? So one of the interesting things about raw reporting that the CIA does, it's always in past tense. It's a, as of 12 April, John Smith planned to attack this police station because we don't know why John Smith may want to do it. And even if it's in the Intel report, might he change his mind and what might influence him to change his mind? An agent tells you that. An agent who was at the meeting with John Smith will go, John's under tremendous pressure. He really doesn't want to do this attack, but he needs to do it to bring in more recruits and get money. That's the gold. That's the nugget that if you put that in your intel report and then in the analysis, allows the decision maker to know, oh my gosh, how can we preempt this attack or how can we dissuade John Smith from launching that attack? You can't get that from technology. You only get very clinical cuts and bites and you might think it's very exhaustive, but if you can't see into somebody's mind and heart that only a human being can tell you, and I'm not trying to make it poetic and flowery, but it's really technically true. To understand what John Smith was thinking, you need somebody who was at the meeting with John Smith. You need somebody who knows John Smith. And even if you listen to all of his conversations, you'll never know that. And thus, you'll always be short on predicting, as you said, what might John Smith do? What do we need to do to protect ourselves? So human is going to be central for the foreseeable future? Well, beyond the job security, yeah, I certainly <laughs> like to think so. I think it's indisposable. And I think there's a real danger because those who have moved away and, and are so proud of their technology and proud of their cyber and all of which we need are thinking we can dispense with the human. We don't need those agents as much. And then we're going to see some real blowups that will occur. And when they do, if they do an after action, it would be they miscalculated. They really didn't know what the intention of the individual was, or as you said, how they would respond, how they would react. So you need on the technical enabled side agents that get you in the door because people imagine all these great scientists and brilliant machines. Isn't it a lot easier for me to give somebody a USB to plug into a computer that gets us behind it so that we can then throw our software in there as opposed to, do we find a way technically through pipes and papers and Tom Cruise jumping off an airplane and whatever like that? No, you need a spy who works there, who just gives you the in. And then how do we interpret all this data? You know, a lot of data today is open source. It's phenomenal what's open source, and it is the wave of the future. There's some pundits that say, we don't need spying. We just need better open source. Okay, 
yeah, we need much better open source. We need a better ability to not only collect all this amazing data, but to process it, interpret it, and to analyze it. But if we're just looking at it very coldly and clinically based on documents we read, movies we see, conversations we hear, we're not going to have the full picture on the interpretation that only an agent is going to provide. Could there be a case where we just need an agency that focuses on human and that's all they do? We just need an espionage agency because the portfolio of the CIA is just too broad, like the DCI until 2004 was responsible for all of American intelligence. You spoke about covert action, kinetic, drones, analysis, bringing all the information together. Would it not be better if the CIA was just a huge analytic arm and there was a separate human intelligence agency that fed important information into that? central intelligence agency rather than having that as an arm of it because it seems to me that there's just various identity crises going on and it can depend on who the leadership are what's kind of in at any particular moment i'm thinking of stansfield turner comes along and yeah we need to get more to technical intelligence and then it kind of swings back to casey and it's like no i was in the oss get out there and rip and run and do what you need to do take some risks so Would it be better to just have some new acronym but for an agency that's just, here's where you go to be a case officer, here's where you go to get spies, here's where you go to be a spy. It doesn't have to be part of this monolithic thing anymore where it has to constantly try to reassert itself as being the soul of the agency. I think you can no doubt make an argument like that where I would throw out for your consideration is CIA primarily supposed to be a strategic collector. So they're, in fact, referred to in the community as the collector of last resort. So CIA, because it's actually a lot smaller than people imagine, and particularly when you look at the clandestine service, a lot smaller than people imagine, should be used for the most important things where the risks are the highest because it's supposed to be the best foreign intelligence service the United States has. The United States has a lot of foreign intelligence services. There are services within services, but they also have different priorities. DOD, the Department of Defense, they may have a lot of very tactical requirements, which still meet the level of CIA because we don't need to take that kind of risk for low-level stuff or sometimes even have people trained to the same standards or using the same kind of tradecraft. I've got some issues there because I think tradecraft is tradecraft. A good case, a bad case, you've got to handle them just as securely because the consequences to them getting killed or to the United States, the blowback is significant. So I think the CIA still needs to be the premier service. And I think it needs to have its finger in enough pots because, as I was also saying, there's so much synergy in marriage among the, the ints, right? The different cliques. There's U-Mint, there's SIGINT, there's OSINT, there's IMINT, right? Imagery. We can go down the line, right? I think there's five or six of them, actually. But they all have a single common thread of human. So for the CIA to be really good, it has to have at least a foot in the door. And actually, CIA used to be sort of a little bit of everything. It was sort of a mini NSA. It was a mini national security agency for signals intelligence. It was a mini imagery collector. It had its own satellites. It had its own imagery analysts. And so it ceded a lot of that to the bigger agencies for this efficiency that you're saying. But because there's this need to enable these operations, CIA still has now CCI, which used to be IOC Information Operations, is now the, oh my God, it's part of the Director of Digital Innovation. So they do a lot of the tech stuff. 
because they need to sometimes have the agility to align with the agent operations and have the freedom to innovate that a bigger component like NSA and, and NGA uh, just don't have. And they also have some congressionally mandated bureaucratic tangles for like buying things, aligning things. CIA can buy things that are foreign if it's for the security of an operation where if it's a DOD agency, everything's got to be American. Well, if you're a spy and you can't have American components in a lot of things you're doing, right? So CIA has to have just enough of its feet across or fingers across the different pools, letting other agencies be the overall mission manager for SIGINT, for imagery collection, what have you, but being the mission manager for human and then having its finger in enough of these bowls that it could do the job right, but keeping them still because they're specialized in the sense of strategic intelligence the collector of last resort. One of the ways we went sideways, we, the agency that is over the years, was we got involved in a lot of tactical support because we were doing other people's missions, maybe because people thought we were better at it or we were more agile. But we were doing a lot of combat support and even uh, under any circumstances, CIA needs to be doing that. But getting really into the weeds of stuff, using case officers and agents that were so low level where we should have been more at the higher level you know, what are the plans and intentions of the Taliban, of Al-Qaeda, not, you know, what is the mood in this village towards the rebels or whatever like that? That's not a strategic mission. That's very tactical. So I think if we kind of take what we have and just make it more efficient, but allow people to do their jobs to the best of their abilities, let CIA be central, let it be strategic, let it have the pulse across the community and be the mission manager for human Doing that efficiently, then I think, takes away the need for a specialized service, which may not have the synergy with the other agencies because it's not centralized. It's like a human service, but where does it marry up closest with? Where is its insight to what NSA needs? What does you know NGA need? What does the paratroopers need? That's where I think CIA's central role really helps it do human better. Mm-hmm. And let's go on to counterintelligence. So I thought that was one of the, a great point in the book where you discuss your second youngest daughter and you said that almost from the minute she could talk, she had sussed you out. She could smell the blood. Tell us a little bit more about that example. Oh, it's scary. So yeah, I mean, the Russians, the Chinese, the Iranians were nothing compared to uh, my lovely daughter, who I don't know, just for some reason early on, uh, for her, manipulating was like breathing, for one thing. So she could work her crowd. We were uh, we were at the farm doing a tour down there. I was an instructor. And the kids were, you know, were young at the time, but I would invite the students in my class, my branch, right? Because we each had sort of what we called a, a branch or a class, and then we would teach across the, the classes. And I would say, look how my daughter will work you. Look how she works the room, how she's going to be focused on you and make you feel like you're the center of attention and what's important to you and your bio, your background. And, and, and she was amazing at that. It was just sort of a natural thing. But at the same point, for some reason, she always thought that her father was a spy. I honestly, to this day, I really don't know where that came from. But she was looking for like secret. I think she watched Spy Kids too many times. And she was looking for secret compartments and what door would take me to the back cave or whatever <laughs> like that. And she was absolutely convinced for, for years until I guess she had told herself, no, you know, she was older now because you tell your kids at different ages, depends on what they need to know and, and when they're able to handle it. And I think all my kids were like in their teens, like early teens when I told them. And she had kind of let go, but it's like, I knew it. But the danger with that is what she might say accidentally, what any of your kids might say accidentally. So 
if she's t- paying attention to when you go and you come and go and, and what you're doing and what's different about her dad compared to other moms and dads in the community, in the international community, kids aren't dumb, but she really was suspicious. So, gee, dad, why do you go out late at night for like, and why do you have a backpack and, and you're not like dressed in a suit like you are during the day? And I mean, just a lot of questions. So I, I had to have cover stories for her. I couldn't leave anything out. You're worried about the local counterintelligence service breaking in and looking at your phones, your computer. I was worried about my child, right? There's nothing I could leave out there that I had to like or had to be able to account for. You're always protective of your contacts and what you're doing, open ones as well, right? But I couldn't leave like any names. God forbid she ever got a phone book or whatever like that or got a hold of my phone. And there's nothing that's going to compromise you there because anything you put there, you know an intel service can get anyway. But it would allow her to ask questions. So she was tough. My youngest, who we called Mr. Spock, because of her like Vulcan like hearing. I mean, she could be like three floors above and hear a conversation and ask you about it. So when you're with a family, there's a counterintelligence component to what's your persona for your family. So my kids were all very disappointed in me over the years because I thought I, I was really boring. Dad didn't do anything interesting. He never got promoted. He's not an ambassador. What's wrong with my dad? Right. So they were like, like relieved when I, when I would tell them and when they got old enough that your dad's actually a spy. Here's what I do, but here's why it's important. We keep it secret da, 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 to protect you, protect the people who are doing stuff. But it's a real key issue with how do you deal with your own life? Your, I said earlier how a case officer has to create a pattern of life, routines that are deliberate and conscious under which they're going to spy. So they want to come across as boring. They never want to come across as suspicious. I mean, you want the political officer talking to the opposition to get surveillance. You don't want you, you don't want to be under surveillance because they think there's something funny about you. So then you've got your kids where your kids want you to want to they want to think their their parents are cool. You certainly want to appear cool to your kids, but you can't appear like really cool where they can inadvertently compromise your operations. I was at one function. I talk about it in my book where the daughter of whom you're speaking, we're at this event because, you know, especially if you're in these difficult austere locations, people bring their families. It's a great place to, to watch movies or have parties when things are blowing up outside or, you know, it takes you a day to buy a chicken in the local markets, right? And so I was actually talking to somebody who was trying to cultivate and it was an open thing. It was at my house. So it was still kind of like very, very, very early. I was just trying to getting into him and stuff like that. And we're chatting and it was a dangerous place. There was things going on. And my daughter overhears him saying, oh yeah, you know, we just kind of lock up at night and make sure we're safe and just hope for the best and that the guards are reliable. And my, my daughter goes, oh, but not my daddy. He's so considerate. He does the food shopping at night. So he waits till it's like really late. And because he doesn't want to disturb us, he goes out like the back door of the house and, and, so much for cover at that point, right? So how do you deal with that is really a challenge for raising a family overseas. It's fun though, and it's worth doing, but yeah, it's a, it's a consideration. There's a great chapter in your book about that. I could easily sit here and speak to you for another four or five hours, but I think we've done a pretty good job of covering a lot of ground. And thanks so much for your insight and your expertise, Doug. It's been really fascinating to speak to you. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. Please make sure you listen and come to the Spy Museum, which is the most phenomenal institution I've ever seen. It's got incredible stuff. Some stuff I don't think should be here, but really great stuff. And while you're here, if you haven't done it already, please buy my book. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks, Doug. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 non-profit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and would like to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.com. 
www.ghostsandmysteries.org for more information. Hey, listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey and share your feedback now. Now. 